Shazia Ganai is the CEO of NeuroInsight. They are a neuromarketing and neuroanalytics company that uses unique brain imaging technology to measure how the brain responds to communications. This allows them to deliver unique customer insights and reveal how a piece of design or a piece of advertising is affecting people at both a rational and an emotional level. We discuss how the brain works, influencing human decision-making, her time with Procter & Gamble and PhD, imposter syndrome, leadership, and becoming a CEO of a multi-million pound firm at the age of 36, female leadership and unrepresentation of minorities in media. Enjoy the chat. Shazia Ganai, thank you very much for being on Dot Innovate. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Super excited to have you on the show. Your history and background is absolutely fascinating and I'm looking forward to uh, getting into that in a lot more detail. But you get your degree from De Montfort University in 2003 in pharmaceutical and cosmetic yeah. science. It looks as though this was always the plan that you had for your career. Um, well, I, I mean, I'd have to say no, really. I think if you'd have asked me even five years ago if I'd be the CEO of a neuromarketing company, mm. I probably would have laughed. Um, no, I mean, when I started out, I think the same as anyone, your degree's kind of a passport, isn't it? And, you, you know, you never really know at that point what the future holds. You don't fully know yourself. I mean, I still sometimes mm. laugh and say, I wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up, right? <laughs> um and I, I should probably be a grown up by now. But I mean, when I did that degree, I did it because it was the stuff I was doing at the time. You know, I did science. I come from a, a, a Pakistani Muslim household where it's very normal to kind of just automatically be conditioned to go down that route. Mm. Um, and so that's what I did. But it's interesting because I I'm not really an academic. I'm very much a, a person who sort of learns through application. And so I'm much better in industry than I've ever been in academia. So I got a degree, which is a relief. But frankly, um, I didn't really use it an awful lot afterwards. The, the scientist in me has very much aided where I've got to today because I definitely have um, a slightly strange brain in that I'm probably equally analytical and creative um, at the same time, which sort of helps, I guess, in this sort of field of neuromarketing, because it's about understanding emotion. It's about understanding narrative and storytelling, because it's what your brain is looking for. Uh, human beings' brains are sort of wired to seek um, stories to make meaning of life and sense of the world. Hmm. Um, but everything's rooted in science. So I guess in its own strange way, it led me down this path. Um, but it was a, a series of beautiful, happy accidents that led me to where I am today. Yeah. And mm. I mean, I, I remember a little bit of the chemistry from time <laughs> to time. But um, yeah, I don't use any of the microbiology or um, any of that kind of stuff anymore. That's strange. I, I, I use it in my day to day, <laughs> in my day to day life. Uh, you started your career at Procter & Gamble in 2003 as an intern uh, as a formulation scientist for Max Factor and Hugo Boss, skincare and yeah. consumer research, specifically men's grooming products. Yeah. What was it like working for such an iconic organization? Do you know what? I think it's absolutely the um, the best thing that could have happened to me. I, I, I mean, whenever I talk to people about, I mean, I did an internship and then I had seven years working there after I'd graduated and people are always like, oh, that must have been a tough place to work or you know, some people sort of bow down to the world of P&G, but mm. 
it, it was tough, but it was also the most nurturing, warm environment. And I think it's a really great training ground because big businesses like that are hugely successful because they know what they're doing. They know how to train their people. You do end up becoming a bit of a proctoid. I think anyone who's worked there knows that you sort of become part of um, right. a community and it never is leaves the you. But they do it? really, yeah, yeah, right. it certainly proctoids. is. But they do, you know, sort of churn out um, good people. And actually, mm. when I started my internship, and this was really interesting, I, I did start as a formulation scientist and that internship was during my degree. And then I went back as a permanent employee as soon as I graduated. And I started out in a lab, you know, in a lab coat with my gogs on. You know, I was formulating a dimethicone replacement for liquid makeup formulas. Of course you were. And yeah, as you do, you know, <laughs> lab coat covered in dyes. Sure. And um, the, the gods in Cincinnati killed that project. And I got moved onto a research project on the Hugo Boss skincare range, which oh. hadn't launched at the time. And it was a it was one of my many happy, beautiful um, accidents, because had I not gone from that chemistry based, very isolated, quite an introverted space of being a, a formulation scientist to the world of research, but still within R&D, I wouldn't have had that aha moment where I realized actually what my purpose is, what I'm about is understanding people, understanding true insight and the heart of the human truth that sort of drives all the decisions that brands make. And I got to, you know, dig into the minds of, of men um, and their grooming oh, no. routines. <laughs> yeah, at a time when, uh, you know, men you know weren't really talking about, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I learned everything I needed to know, to be fair. Um, but, you know, I think the interesting thing was, it was at a time when men's research in, in beauty wasn't really happening. So it was a really interesting space to be in a really great brand. I mm. mean, Hugo Boss is a really iconic fashion brand um, for menswear. So yeah, a, a, a really, really big blessing, I think, for me. Hmm. You became Global Head of Insights for GHD in 2014, where you continued to drive more consumer-centric thinking across the business and better research agency partnerships whilst main maintaining and managing the insights team. What did you take away from your time with PNG that you subsequently used in your role with GHD? I mean, it was a weird jump. I did seven years doing kind of consumer research um, in terms of understanding how people feel about products and packaging and then translating that so that the scientists could then optimize things and the design, the pack design guys could optimize things. And then I moved on to perfume, which is completely emotional and not very functional. So it became a lot more commercial, the work that I was doing. Still a lot more rooted in an R&D side. So when I then left and went to GHD, it was not an R&D role. It was a research role, very commercial. So a bit of a leap. And, you know, it's a really different business. So at the time when I joined, GHD was, you know, owned by a private equity firm. It was reasonably small in terms of the team that I was working in in London. And that's the other thing. I went from working in, you know, the back arse end of nowhere in Surrey to mm. Soho in central mm. London. So it was bit of a, jump. a real, yeah, real mm. shift in a lot of ways really exciting time for me in my career um, because I had been, I, I think I've just turned 30 when I started working there. And the interesting thing um, in terms of what I took from P&G 
there's some things that I took and some things I learned not to take because the difference between going from like a massive organization like P&G is there's so many systems there. There's so much kind of organizational structure and it's a lot less entrepreneurial. You know, they've Mm. got the they've got the time. So they tend to take, you know, a few years to develop a proposition Mm. and everyone's working in big teams and there's a buffer above and below you. Whereas when I went to GHD, I had to take a sort of balance between the rigor and the the acumen that you generate from working and being trained in an organization like that to somewhere that had real entrepreneurial spirit, a real agility about it. Um, And that's a it's a it's a skill that I think, you know, can be really tough. I had worked when I was at GHD, I in the four years that I was there, I, I had three CEOs. There was quite high turnover, turnover. at the top. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they'd all come from different organizations, but actually two out of three had worked at P&G and the other one had worked at Unilever. And I think one of the things that's um, really interesting is when you watch people who've been in big businesses like P&G for a really long time and then they come over to somewhere that's very different is how much they try to turn that new organization into a version of P&G, but it's not possible. Hmm. You know, if you want to maintain that entrepreneurial spirit, you can't chuck all the systems in that exist somewhere like P&G because it just won't work. Hmm. But what you can take is that really fundamental understanding of what excellence looks like, because P&G is really good at a lot of stuff. The other thing um, that became very clear, and this sort of happened um, over time, was P&G teaches you what your core capabilities are and what they really aren't. And it's so important for us to recognize that. I think there's a real drive for a lot of businesses to kind of do a, we're jack of all trades, that kind of approach. Yeah, okay. And it's because somewhere like P&G has the capacity to not have everybody be jack of all trades. Right. So you have to learn which bits you can do, which bits you can hand over. The other thing, and this still stands today in the role that I'm in, what I took from P&G is an understanding of how different functions in a multi sort of functional team, how they collaborate. And don't get me wrong, at P&G, there were usually heated discussions between the marketing teams and the R&D teams mm. on a regular basis. Mm. But when I moved over from being kind of a bridge between a commercial and you know the scientists at P&G to then having to do the same thing at GHD but looking at it from a different lens because I was reporting into a different part of the business it really helped me see the value in like real collaboration and what that looks like rather than kind of you know bitching and moaning to your <laughs> you know internal business family all the time and having a harder time with it all so yeah I, mm. I learned a lot from that place it, it, it really is a great business mm. super super fascinating <laughs> let's talk a little bit about neuro insight you're yeah. the you're the ceo now in 2019 you became ceo of the company a neuromarketing and neuroanalytics company that uses the unique brain imaging technology to measure how the brain is responding to communications you're the only company in the world that actually licensed to use the patented technology, enabling yeah. you to measure second by second the changes in brain activity. It sounds really fascinating, a little bit scary at the same time. <laughs> w- what problems do you solve for your clients? 
Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it is fascinating. It's a, it's unbelievable. And actually, interestingly, I'd I'd always said I'd never go agency side. Mm. Um, Why? But I knew that if I, well, I always thought I loved the kind of, you know, see it through from start to finish, sure. working, you know, going right from the inception of an idea and mm. the vision that a business has for something all the way through to mm. watching that you know, baby grow into, mm. into a full blown adult. Mm. Um, but actually neuro is, I think it's the only thing I would have made that shift for because as a, as someone who's fascinated by human beings, their behavior, their mind, how they work, this is the only space that allows you to get to the seat of actual human truth. And I'd always said, if I ever, ever went to agency, it would be someone I would have hired myself, um, as a client side researcher, um, and the, the, the product and the technology and the platform that they use would have to be life changing in terms of the insight generated. So, I mean, when I, when I was approached about the role, it was nearly three years ago now, um, I was like sold instantly cause mm. it really is fascinating. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as you said, last June, I was promoted into the role of CEO from, taking over from a really incredible woman, Heather Andrew, who, who'd built the UK arm of the business from, from the bottom up. And it is fascinating that the way it works, you said we had a patented technology, so it's called steady state topography, SST, because everyone loves an acronym. Mm -hmm. And, um, SST was it created by a neuroscience professor in Australia, mm. Richard Silverstein. And he's a, a fascinating guy and he was actually doing work on ADHD. So all of his work was academic. And, you know, he was using normal EEG, but you get so much noise in the data. I think some research firms still use EEG. And he created SST to overcome some of those technical challenges that he had. But also because it allows you to, as you said, measure second by second what's going on in people's brains. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what we solve for um, clients off the back of that, I mean, it's a spectrum of things. I mean, I'd say ultimately... The overarching goal is to make the subconscious conscious for marketers, because about 90 percent of our decisions are made in our subconscious mind. Right. So before us rational humans can articulate it uh, in any you know, verbal or visual way, those decision making we have no idea that that's even going on mm. that's the bit that's kind of scary just about the brain in general mm. and so when it comes to clients you know some of the bread and butter work we've been doing for years has been around advertising so standard kind of ad optimization looking at true effectiveness creative effectiveness and then more recently we've been doing a lot of work with media owners so the likes of twitter um royal mail um, BBC Worldwide, ITV, those sorts of businesses where we look at, you know, how context impacts the brain. Because, you know, the days are gone now of us having like four channels on TV and we just sit and watch and some ads come on. People are bombarded with information, you know, on different platforms, channels, mm. even mm. devices, whether you're out, you know, on the go or whether you're stationary at home. And so, the context within which our content is now delivered, it also impacts how effective that content itself actually is. And so that's the kind of problem solving people are trying to get to grips with. And, 
you know, there aren't many ways that you can measure that in the research world today. In fact, there aren't really any ways you can measure it properly or accurately. Quantifying emotion is not something that we can do through a survey or through a focus group. You know, it's just not possible. So, so by context, just so I'm making sure that I'm understanding this properly, mm-hmm. by context, are you saying that um, depending on the state that I'm in, um, you know, the fact that we are inundated with uh, sort of media messages, right, left and center, screens, uh, billboards, ads from every direction that we can that we can see, yeah. and also the context that we're operating in, whether we're tired or hungry or stressed or what have you, those things need to be taken into consideration by media owners to better target us. Is that so? It's if they it's if they want to get the best out of their content, because usually um, whether it's a media owner or even a brand, I mean they're looking at. For media owners, it's different. It's about understanding how their context can impact, you know, what the content should look like. For brands, it can be about, you know, what's the right media mix here? Mm. You know, how do I get the biggest bang for my buck? Because they have to spend across a million different things now. You know, there's so many platforms that they need to get their their, um, messaging across on. So there's two different layers to it. But yeah, effectively, for media owners, it's about... So, for example, for Twitter, you know, we did a piece of work, it's published, and it was all about understanding the most effective video content on Twitter. So it wasn't about our brand in particular. It was about how do people's brains respond to information when they're on my context? Mm. And the other one that's super interesting is we do quite a lot of work on out of home. Um, Now, out of home, I mean, it's it's an interesting space, right, because... Measuring ROI on out of home is near impossible because people are walking around all day Mm -hmm. and taking information in implicitly into their brains from their surroundings and are unaware of just how much that is impacting what happens in the future. So one of the things that we measure in the brain is what we call long-term memory encoding. Now, long-term memory encoding correlates directly with um, future decision-making action and behavior change. And when I talk about long-term memory encoding, I'm talking about the stuff your brain is choosing to lay down into its memory for good. And it's stuff that your brain feels is interesting, relevant, new information. It's the bits of narrative it's stringing together. And these are all like evolutionary mechanisms in our brains. Hmm. They're things that your brain is wired to want to take in. So some of that stuff is being taken in, you know, when you're outside going for a walk from, you know, one place to another there'll be loads of stuff out there that your brain will be processing like a weird little computer robot thing and we have no idea that that stuff is actually being held in there and it provides our life context hmm. and out of homes the same it's so hard to measure it it's super fascinating and and an area that i'm um i'm especially sort of really interested in it seems very similar in many ways to behavioral science or behavioral economics mm-hmm. from the point of view that obviously marketers are using behavioral science more and more these days based on yeah. Daniel Kahneman's work and Tversky and, and those sorts of guys and it's really based on sort of the clickware responses that human beings uh, sort of intuitively move towards when they're when they're presented with a stimulus wherever that stimulus sort of sort of comes from so that we can sort of start to nudge or predict human behavior in some ways. How different is what you're doing to behavioral science and behavioral economics? So it's it's like another layer. 
of a similar sort of thing. So it, it works really nicely in conjunction with that sort of work. And actually, when we do um, social media studies, we do get a lot of behavioral data as well, because the way we do that is people would literally be scrolling through their feeds and we can measure and record you know, how long that process goes on for, what the behavior looks like, and then the brain response on top. So the, the bit that's different is behavioral science tells you what people do and it can hypothesize um, based on that why that may happen. And it can tell you based on a larger sample why that may happen. What our data tells you is the underlying motivations in the subconscious that drove that behavior in the first place. Interesting. Okay. And so it's, you know, I always, uh, I can't even articulate, right, because I'm a rational, conscious human right now, how unbelievably interesting this stuff is yeah. and how much I really have a passion for it. But the thing I love the most is what we're tapping into is the seat of all of the decision making, right? It all starts in the brain. And it's, it's an interesting field because you've got the behavioral, you've got behavioral research, behavioral economics, behavioral experiments. You also have biometrics as well. So things like eye tracking, facial coding, um, galvanic skin response and heart rate monitors. And all of those things, they are responses to something that starts in the brain. Hmm. And that's what we measure we measure the starting point. So it's the it's the holy grail hmm. and the ultimate why and how and what. Of human beings. You know, it, exactly. Is, so is this very sim is this similar to sort of evolutionary biology then? Because I guess what evolutionary biology says is the reason we are the way we are is because at some point in our history, um, you know, uh, our genes have decided what things are conducive to survival and they've kept those and they've gotten rid of everything else. So we are right now the culmination of uh, 150,000 years or millions of years of decision making by our genes so that the reason why we make certain decisions go back to, to a certain extent, survival, whether that be ego, status, uh, resources, wealth, are we talking about those underlying sort of motivations that have been written about and talked about by evolutionary yeah. biologists? So partly, yes. So the part that is the yes is um, there are mechanisms within our brain and our brain has evolved to the point it's at um, in order to, for us to survive. So for example, there's a part of the brain that we measure at the back. It's a metric we call emotional intensity, and it's an evolutionary mechanism of arousal. And what it does is it tells us the strength of the emotion that someone would feel. That emotion may be positive or negative, but that actual mechanism is about the strength of that emotion. That's very much an evolutionary mechanism. So partly, yes, but also our brains take in what they deem important based on the context within which they exist. So there's a layer of stuff that goes on and the structure and the function of the brain very much has evolved from that time in order for us to live as we live today. But what your brain chooses to pack away and the way it chooses to behave, that's based on conditioning when we're kids. It's based on cultural context that we live in. So every brain in the world, unless there's some sort of sort of abnormality within it, has a similar structure and function. So the little areas of the brain are the same for every human, right? It's a human brain. But somebody's brain in France may respond really differently to someone's brain in Japan 
to the same piece of communication because mm. their cultural context dictates what they feel is relevant. And it's interesting because that's why things like unconscious bias is such a hot topic. It's why things like diversity and inclusion are such hot topics. Um, it's why the um, Advertising Standards Authority brought in new rules around gender stereotyping because what happens is when, and I had a really interesting chat about this with a friend who was saying, oh, don't you think they've gone a bit over the top banning some of these ads? And I'm like, your kids are at home playing with their toys while the TV is on in the periphery of their life. Hmm. And those ads are subconsciously conditioning that child to what narrative they then take in to the, like, to their life for the future. And it's how they string their reality of the world together. Hmm. So that's why, um, you know, some of those, some things, yes, survival, evolutionary mechanisms, other things, cultural context, very now, you know, the things that we get when we're children. And that's why, you know, the world is trying to consciously shift certain narratives around our socioeconomic climate, because they will impact our decision making processes now as much as some of those evolutionary mechanisms will drive us to as well. Mm, super fascinating. And uh, I can see why you're really, really passionate about it. it it's yeah. um, it, 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 from what you've said, you're building on top of the work done by behavioral economics or, or at least there's another layer to sort of where behavioral economics starts well stops and where you begin but we know very little about the brain it's probably the least understood organ in the human body how reliable are the insights that you collect so great question i mean and you know i think that with um some research agencies and firms and research folks um, yeah, there's a there's less understanding. And I think for neuroinsight specifically, because we're rooted in neuroscience and the founder is a professor emeritus of neuroscience, and we have a full team of neuroscientists who develop the kit, the algorithms that sit behind it, um, and all the software, it means that everything is truly rooted in a fundamental understanding of the brain. And I think that yeah, you know, you're right. There, it is one of the organs that people are still doing a lot of work in understanding. And Richard's still doing quite a lot of academic work. He did some recent amazing work about creativity in the brain, which totally blew my mind. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there is a there is a good level of understanding, and particularly, I'd say, with a lot of pride for neuroinsight. And by the way, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't say that I. Hmm know everything there is to know about the brain but I certainly know that we have the most incredible resources at the core of the business that have such a strong understanding of it mm. so the insight is rooted in both you know excellent commercial business acumen and marketing specialism and also neuroscience so it's like a really great marriage between the two mm. yeah What's the ethical component of this? Because I can hear marketers listening to this now thinking, hmm, so you're, <laughs> you're understanding my unconscious input so that yep. you can help marketers target me better. What's the ethical yep. component to this? So, I mean, there's two parts. So one is, um, like with any research, it's all about consent. So we you know, we ensure that when people are coming in, we get their full consent on what they're doing in the same way you would when you're trying to get the words out of their mouth to help you write a concept in a focus group. Um, or when people are signing up to something online and they're giving away their data for free, 
you know, we make sure that we give them consent and we have them sign consent forms when they come in for any research. We also explain to them what's going to happen. We say we're going to be measuring your brain whilst you watch TV or whilst you undertake some tasks. So they know that the data that they are giving is going to be used for, you know, a, a marketing firm. And our website very openly talks about the clients that we have and stuff. We also make sure just to keep it light, we tell them that nothing is going into their brains. We're not taking anything out of their brains. Their deepest, darkest secrets are very safe within their brain. Right. We are measuring very specific response yeah. to, you know, certain things they're going to see or hear. So it's about understanding how they respond to the visual stimulus and, and the audio stimulus that they have in front of them. Mm. And the second part on the ethical side is we do have an ethical policy. Um, our ethical policy is it sort of states that there are certain uh, categories that we won't work with because optimization of, um, of campaigns, marketing, communication, anything like that, it's you know, a real gift. But if it is then used to do harm versus good, uh, we do not want any part of that. So we don't work with um, gambling. Um, we don't work with tobacco companies and mm. we don't work on, you know, the really extreme end of payday loans, mm. you know, where it's like 5,000% APR, right. you know, that kind of thing. Because the point there is... People. Exactly. It's exactly that. It's targeting. And it's also just where a product is created where it will intentionally do more harm than good. Mm. You mm. know, and I think mm. it's actually really important for um, research firms all around to kind of take responsibility because we do have a lot of power. You know, data is an incredibly powerful resource on this planet. Um, and we have a responsibility to behave ethically. Um, and I've personally for you know whether I'm working for neuroinsight or not it definitely feels like something personal to me that I feel like I was compromising my integrity if I ever did it otherwise hmm. super interesting so I've got a two-pronged question now because everything that you said is super fascinating to me but also super new to me as well and I consider myself okay. a pretty well-informed person um my, <laughs> my, my fiance and my friends would probably tell you otherwise um but what's the level of awareness among marketers of what you're doing of this and what's the common pushback that you tend to get yeah. from brands and marketers so i think if you ask people they'd say their awareness was quite high i think that in reality their awareness of um techniques outside of the conscious is pretty high so they tend to bucket uh, neuromarketing in with the biometrics that'd so be like oh do you mean eye tracking oh do you mean facial coding right. but we're saying no we mean measuring the brain mm. now within that I think that there are some who are aware that it can be done how it's done um, is is another story I don't think that there are that many marketers who are as aware as they could be or should be frankly um, of this sort of tech and it's because, you know, everyone sort of has a bit of tunnel vision when they're working on their brands. And I've been on that side of the fence. So I know how that is. It's quite hard to, you know, go and seek out things. And so it's our job as well as an agency to make sure that we provide the thought leadership so that our voice can be heard and so that we are giving marketers the information they need to help them move along in their world. Um, so, yeah, I think it's not it's not as the awareness isn't as high as it could be. I think we've still got a way to go. I think it's growing. I'd say over the last few years, definitely more so people are becoming a bit more savvy. And it's because 
you know, the same old questions are being asked day in, day out, and they're not being answered because a survey is not cutting it and a focus group's not cutting it. So now a lot of brands are going, how do we answer these questions? Can we look outside of what we already know? Mm. But pushback wise, I mean, it's, it's a weird one. Having come from P&G, as you know, they're a really innovative business, right? So they, they are at the forefront of doing a lot of cool stuff. However, big businesses like that, who tend to have a lot of budget, they also uh, like to be safe and secure in what they know. Mm. So they have, um, you know, reams of data that go back historically that they would use and track and they stick to and, and it's their security blanket and it's, you know, 90%. It's that lovely number that mm. they can get. Um, and this is different. And, you know, we are all the word innovative has been bastardized because people sort of walk around saying, you know, we want to be really innovative with our approach. Right. But the reality is that actually there's a fear within us of the unknown. Interesting. And that's true of everything, I think. So taking that leap and going for something that's really different, that means your stakeholders will have to go, actually, how does this work? They can't just have one slide that mm. says it, you know, you mm. can have two slides instead. Mm. <laughs> you know, we go, this mm. is what we're measuring, this is how it works, here's your number that shows you this is working or not. Um, but, it, you know, the education and the coming out of the safety zone, you know, those sorts of things are terrifying for people. and. I think with our clients, and we work with some some big clients, so we work with the likes of Google, we work with Twitter, as I said, we work with some um, some financial services brands, food and drink and, and FMCG. The ones that work with us, they tend to sort of have a, an aha moment, you know, where they'll go, wow, this stuff is kind of game changing. And, you know, now we've figured it out we're going to keep going with it. But it's getting people over the line. It's getting them to go, okay, I'm going to come out of my safety zone a bit mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could say that that could be true of anything in life, right? You know, it takes a, takes a certain amount of guts. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. Especially, especially with something new, especially without that safety blanket that we're used to, if we've built our business yeah. and our careers on something, yeah. there's a and lot I mean, of reluctance. The nice thing about this methodology is it is quite complementary to other things. So we have done research where we've gone, do you know what? We'll do the neuro. It's the core of what we do. We can tag on a little survey so you've got some conscious data and you can see how well the two things marry up. And we always say we're not going to go full on with the survey because that's not what we do. You want a survey, I'll recommend a good agency that does it for you, but mm. I'm not going to let you spend your money with us on that because that's not what we're about. And I think sticking to core capability is really good. And it's a really strong position to be in because there's too many people who go, we're really unique. We do everything, which is a contradiction. Sure. Um, but I mean, I think that, you know, when when people are coming to us and asking for those things, one of the things that I always say is, you know, your survey data is a subset of your subconscious. Your subconscious tells you so much more. Mm. Same with qualitative research. We've done the odd, you know, vox pop or a little focus group on top, right? Because people like a little video of a human speaking, which I think is very good. I think it has value because it tells a story and our brains love stories. So mm. the people watching the data will also love that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's a subset. And neuro is the core. 
it is complementary. It can go hand in hand if you're working with another agency who are doing behavioural work. And we have... So let's talk a little bit about your role as CEO. As as we said last year, you became the CEO for the, for the first time at mm-hmm. uh, at a very young age. I, I don't want to give away your age unless unless you want to, but at a very young age, how prepared were did you feel for the role? Okay, so yes, I can give away my age. I was thirty six when I became CEO, oh, and I feel like I might be fifty six now. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve <laughs> months. Me. Uh, no, I mean it's it's. How prepared did you say was I in that to cut to go into that role? I mean, great question. Are you ever prepared? I had a I had an amazing career coach um, actually because as soon as I knew this was sort of in the coming. So Heather Andrew, who who was my predecessor, she'd sort of said, you know, I've brought you here because ultimately I'd like you to sort of take over. Um, when as soon as I knew that, I was like, I need to get someone who's gonna you know, help me figure this out. And then I've got an amazing friend who's also a leadership coach. His name's David McQueen. He's absolutely phenomenal. Mm. And um, he, you know, he's worked with some great people. And he's also, you know, got a lot of things that he's passionate about that are similar to me, a lot of kind of the diversity and inclusion stuff that I feel super passionate about. He is too. And David, um, you know, we did like a year's worth of coaching together. And then I said to him, I was like, you know, it's going to be a couple of years before it actually happens. So that gives me time to really understand myself a bit more, do some more coaching with you. And then lo and behold, it happened way sooner than we'd anticipated. Um, I was expecting it to be at least a year to 18 months, at least, versus when I found out. So I was, I'd say, I thought I might have been slightly prepared but realistically you don't know it until you're in it you know Mm. you don't know how it's going to play out for you either because we're all really different in this role I think and you get to shape it you know you get to choose what version of a CEO you're going to be Mm. um I think I'm still learning. I'll be completely honest. Mm-hmm. I don't think you ever really stop. I think anyone who thinks that they know how to do it fully is lying to themselves mm-hmm. and probably need the slice of humble pie. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, we're all still learning. Mm. Um, but I love it. I mean, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and you grow into the role, as you as you said. Totally, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was reading... Yeah. Um, Barack Obama's book the other day and he said he was totally unprepared to become the oh, yeah. uh, the president of the United States but he grew into it and uh, really? he, he became the role yeah. uh, super interesting so so how do you grow and develop now as a, as a leader M- mentors um, yeah where do you go oh, to God. learn yeah um well so there's a few different things for me so mentoring's obviously huge I have had mentors for most of my career, I think that it's one of those things that you're not told about in early enough in your life that it's actually really valuable. Um, again, PNG is a really great business because they do encourage mentorship. So you do get to do that from us from the start. The other thing for me, which is sort of outside of work, um, is I, um, I have a health condition called endometriosis. And I, it's a female menstrual health condition. I was diagnosed when I was about 25. I had surgery when I was 26. I had another surgery at 35. You know, it's a chronic health condition, which results in chronic pain. 
And I, a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to help any women who felt alone whilst they're going through the process of diagnosis and stuff in the same way that I did. Um, and so I volunteered to become a support group worker for Endometriosis UK, which is a, the charity in the UK for it. Now, I spent about 10 years um, after my diagnosis just not talking about having this illness. And the reason that I did that was because it can affect your fertility. And uh, culturally, that would have been a nightmare, right? I'm, mm. I'm 37 now. I'm not married. I don't have kids. And in our culture, I've basically done everything the wrong way around because mm. I should have been married, had babies, and I definitely should have been a CEO and I should have had a mortgage. <laughs> I should have been someone's wife and, and not sure. my own. Kind of, you know, there's a lot of those things that exist. Sure. And so I kind of... I. I took the role as a support group leader because I felt um, it was important to help others. What I found was actually those things are always a two-way street. And my growth as a leader has come from understanding how to be empathetic, but without damaging myself. I think this is a really important point. I think empathy and compassion are two of the key um, leadership qualities that should exist. I think that they are two things that a lot of leaders in the world are lacking um, because where ego exists, empathy and compassion can't live very well and be nurtured very well. And leadership roles tend to be heavy ego roles. And um, with empathy comes this horrible sort of emotional turmoil that when you help someone else, you soak up a lot of their energy and when I started doing that support group leader role, the way it helped me in this role, in the CEO job, is it allowed me to help others whilst being able to put coping strategies in place to keep myself together and to maintain my own personal strength. So that was a really important one. I also learn a lot from other people. I think we do from everybody. I think that that's really important. Um, and then mentors, David, my wonderful coach, you know, he said to me once, have an advisory board and that can consist of anyone you want. And so mine is like my two best mates from childhood, my mother, <laughs> you know, um, David. And then I've got another friend who's a, a, an amazing behavioral research specialist, absolutely incredible works for an agency called The Seventh Sense. And uh, his name's Will. He's fantastic. So I've got this little advisory board of mine, you know, and there are obviously probably other people on there, but it's a case of, my growth comes from, you know, talking to other people, taking from their experiences, never feeling like I couldn't learn because I have to. Um, and then there are other things, you know, like I do, I journal, I do mm -hmm. yoga, like mm -hmm. I meditate and I have posts for sort of religious communities as well. So I learned leadership through kind of very small leading opportunities where you know I run mm -hmm. like a student affairs group for the girls in at my local mosque because I'm it a great believer in the <laughs> yeah. girls getting educated um, sure. and having choices so you know li little things like that as yeah. well yeah. they help because you know you need to be able to you know growth as a leader comes from you know the, the usual stuff training programs and all that kind of stuff mm. but actually it just comes from life you know, we all learn from the littlest things in life. They all help us because actually good leadership fundamentally is about enabling. It's about enabling the actual workers who are doing the work 
underneath, you know, and that comes from life stuff. Sure. Learning how to treat humans comes from life stuff. Empathy and compassion, Empathy. as you said yeah, earlier. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And vulnerability. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. So, oh, you know. me yeah. too. Huge fan of, of Brene Brown. Uh, daring greatly and all the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> last couple of questions before we get into our, our favorite questions at the end of the interview. Uh, you said earlier that you're a champion for female leadership in your current role as CEO. CEO. Your voice will definitely be heard. Um, what more can be done to encourage female leaders, female entrepreneurs, and more people at the executive level? I mean, I think it starts from the beginning, right? It's a case of equal opportunity from the word go. Because the reason that there are so few at the top, and this comes both not just with gender, but also with um, sort of ethnic my, you know, minorities and the issue that we have with that in terms of leadership and our underrepresentation of it, you know, it starts from the bottom. It's about understanding that those opportunities exist. Um, and you can't be what you can't see. That's one of the main reasons. There's a lot of women who are starting their careers and they are looking up at the, you know, the tops of the ladders and they're seeing things that are not relevant to who they are. They're seeing a lot of white middle-aged men. It's, it's not relevant to who they are. But we need to instill at the start a culture of, actually, guess what? There needs to be more of mm. this. So you guys need to know that it is possible. And then further up, I think, you know, one of the big things is we need men to build alliances with us and understand how important it is to have that diversity of thought on their boards. Because I do believe, and I think this is true in any situation. So, for example, when we do research, you know, we'll do a nationally representative piece of research. They'll pick their, you know, their consumer set as being representative. And yet you look at our organizations and the people that are making the decisions about the brands and the products that we buy in no mm. shape or form. Are they representative sure. of their customer? or of the country that they live in. Sure. And we're really blessed in the UK in that we have quite a diverse population, right? Mm. However, we still see so much bias and not just unconscious. We mm. see just outright racism. We see outright bias against gender. We see bad behavior. And actually, you know, for brands and marketers, for leaders who are out there, you know, your boardroom should be as diverse as the world you are trying to reach with your products, hmm. right? Because ultimately, you need that diversity of thought to innovate for those consumers, end of. And I'm sure the business case has been made. I think these leaders intuitively understand that with greater diversity and inclusion, uh, you have increases in productivity, increases in creativity, increases in innovation. Yeah. I think they get the business case conceptually, but still we're mm. not seeing the change as fast as we would we would like. What's what's mm -hmm. the blocker? It's it's our unconscious bias. Mm. It always comes down to that. You mm. know, um it's it's interesting. I was having a chat with a friend the other day. Uh Ramadan is this is is, you know, a month that happens every year and I have the same questions every time which are 
So, you know, how long is it for? I mean, it's called the month of Ramadan, so it's a month. I get the questions around, so what? No, you can't, so you can't eat or drink water. No, you can't drink water. Um, and then they ask questions about things like, um, so what, how does it work? So you can't eat at all. No, you can't eat between sunrise and sunset, you know. Yeah. Um, and I get the same questions. And I get questions from people who are championing diversity and inclusion. Interesting. So here's why I believe that the block exists. It's that the people who need to make the change, so the majority, so whether that's you know Caucasians, whether it's male or female, whichever side you want to look at it, the people who are in the majority, whilst they, they need to champion it so because they have the greatest share of voice, right? But because they don't live in a minority context, they do not even think hmm. to seek out information about that sure. context. Whereas if you exist as a minority, you have to look for context mm -hmm. because you it's are... It's all context. It's, it's all con exactly. It's all context. I did an incredible piece of research once when I was at GHD on Afro hair, natural Afro hair, And my CEO at the time had said, I want you to go out to America and I want you to find out how we can sell this straightener to the um, black community out there. And I was like, well, that's the wrong question to, for research. I mean, I'll mm. unpack it. But when I went out there, you know, it wasn't just about, can you use a straightener and tell me how it worked for you? Or can you look at this concept and tell me which words and phrases work for you? It was about digging into the context and the lives of these women and there's political and socioeconomic stuff and there's an amazing insight around how they view time because they don't just get up in the morning have a shower wash their hair and go out the door you know mm. they carve out eight hours mm. every two weeks there's a yeah. whole aisle in Ulta that has specific products they have to wrap their hair when they sleep mm. you know there's all of these things that are part of their normal context, right? Mm. Because that's mm. their life. That a bunch of people in the rest of the world have no clue it exists. That it exists, yeah. Exactly. And I, mm. I feel that with the industry, one of the biggest issues is that the people who have the power to make the changes are the ones who do not look for the context outside of their own because mm. they have no need to. So they know there's an issue they, and they see that from statistics, right? It'll tell you that X percent of people are of this race and X percent are of that. But you don't need to understand anything about the one that you don't belong to. Therefore, you do not. And I just think that is the underlying issue. And I, I've been um, drafting a blog post about this because I really want to put out on LinkedIn something that to the effect of, to everyone who is in my network, who champions diversity and inclusion, read about Ramadan. Mm. Like you're also my mate, like go and understand a bit about my life. Like it's not, mm. it's not that challenging. You know, Google exists now, which means we all have the power to find out so much. And, mm. um, you know, we can talk to people and we can understand. And so I think that ultimately the ones who have the share of voice It's them who need to change. And that's why I said about gender. The only way we're going to flip the switch is if we have the alliance of the men, if the men believe in equality as much as the sure. women fight for it. 
really well said. Just getting towards the end of the interview now, I'm going to ask some of my favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Uh, So I'm super interested to ask you some of them as well. If you can fire some short, sharp answers back. These ones are a little bit more, more personal, I would say, more about you, the human being. So tell us about a time when you failed and what you learn from the experience there's probably quite a few <laughs> um oh gosh time that I failed so I would say uh, probably um you know in a work context I think that I um I had had some difficult conversations with in a previous role and I think I failed articulating myself in the way that I would have liked to and I I tell you what I learned a lot about how I express myself um I am quite articulate I do like to use my words but the reason that I used to fail in the past was because I was almost afraid of using my voice. And I've learned now that my voice does matter and I'm giving myself the permission. And David used those words when he started coaching with me. He said, give mm. yourself permission. And it's mm. probably one of the best bits of advice I've had in my life. Love it. Yeah. Favourite books. What do you read for personal and oh, professional development? Oh, my God. I'm a real bookworm. My Tell house us. is full of books. Um, so it. Brene Brown, Dare to Lead. I love yeah. that book um mary portis work like a woman i also really enjoyed that one it was great um i'm actually in the middle of an audio book at the moment which is gutsy women it's okay. the book from hillary clinton and chelsea clinton and it's just little short stories about women over history who have had an impact and then another one which has been really interesting for my development in not just business but in life is um but um bill bryson's book body I'm fascinated by our minds, but also I have a chronic health condition, which means I'm fascinated by our physiology. Um, And I love the way that Brené Brown talks about thinking about vulnerability and leadership. That definitely helped me evolve my approach. Mm. But there's also, you know, some really interesting stuff about us physically, which I think is often overlooked when it comes to business. Mm. I love Bill Bryson generally anyway. I did see that book. I have to put it on my Amazon reading list. It's great. Fantastic. Um, what do you do for fun when you're not the CEO of, uh, of NeuroInsight? <laughs> so the usual stuff, you know, I'm a regular sort of person. I do yoga. I like to do a couple of yoga retreats a year. Um, 2020, it's not looking hopeful given COVID that I'll be going to any yoga retreats. But, Probably not. Um, yoga, I do work out. That's partly to keep a, a handle on my um, health as much as anything else. I have an amazing this is another part of my advisory board. I have a personal trainer who kills me regularly. <laughs> and it, I do I do yeah. weight and strength training, right? And yeah. I feel like that's part of my, you know, fun. It's part yeah. of my um, mentorship. It's also sure. part of my business growth. Yeah, um, it's essential. I, yeah, I have a, a nephew and three beautiful nieces. So I love beautiful. spending time with my family. That's definitely one of my fun patches. And I also think that that kids are really innocent and they do help you realize the pure joy in life when Mm. you're really bogged down by the harsher realities of things and Mm. I'm a real foodie so yeah I I love trying new things and going to new places so yeah the usual stuff really brilliant a millennial or young person asks you for some advice to get their career started in the world of neuromarketing and neuroanalytics what advice do you give her um, I would give her advice to um, speak to as many people who are outside of her context as possible, because insight is fundamentally about curiosity. 
Um, I would also um, tell her to just give herself permission to try it. Because you know what? Every human has the ability to ask the question why. Mm. And that's really where it all starts in insight. I think, you know, know if you have a curious mind. And the other thing with the industry is that there, there, are real, there are lots of different arms to it. It has room for people who are a bit more kind of mind mappy and more qualitative. And it's got room for people who are a little bit more analytical and like numbers and spreadsheets. Um, and, you know, do some work around understanding yourself. I think that's really fundamental. I feel like hmm. we're really externally focused. We do spend a lot of time going, what do I want to do? And that's very much looking sort of out at the objects that you want to get to. But actually asking the bigger questions of who am I and what am I about? They're really important because they lead us to the best. What should I do? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. And, and my final question um, what do you know about the world of neuromarketing and neuroanalytics today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Oh, God. Oh, my God. That uh, I wish I knew at the beginning of my career. I think at the beginning of my career, I wish I knew it existed <laughs> because I really didn't. When I started at PNG, I didn't know it existed and I wish I had. I mean, I, I don't actually regret anything in my life so maybe I don't necessarily wish I had known because those wouldn't be exactly in this seat sure. today but um yeah I would have I, I think knowing it was there knowing its power knowing its value um and I think um knowing how to help drive it through all of the organizations I've worked with client side and and being able to give it more of a voice earlier because I really do believe that it has a place in the world and I know I'm biased because you know I'm the CEO of one of these companies but mm. I I really think it adds more value um, to our industry than marketers and advertisers know um, and it's really going to change the world. We have been speaking with Shazia Ganai. She is currently the CEO of Neuro Insight. We would be unable to do this show without our very own innovators. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Dot Innovate from the Agency Dealmasters Podcast Network. <laughs>